And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, specifically in chap- uh, John chapter 10. And, uh, um, and we're, not, we're not in 1 Peter, we're actually in 2 Peter. So just a moment ago, I misspoke there. But this morning, uh, and if you've been with us, we've been journeying through various doctrines in the Bible, and we've been looking at how our statement of faith, our confession of 1689, summarizes various key doctrines in the Bible, and we are looking to the Scripture and then looking to uh, the statement of faith for their summaries. And this morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and related to that, our assurance of faith, our assurance of faith. And these biblical doctrines are summarized by chapter 17 and chapters, uh, chapter 18 of our confession. But in working through these doctrines this morning, I want us to at least answer uh, a couple of questions. And I'll pose these questions in different ways to kind of help shed further light on their intent. But one of the questions is this, will Christians persevere in the faith? Will Christians persevere in the faith? Some of you may have heard it put this way. Are believers eternally secure? Are believers eternally secure? And another question that is related to that, but I think that we need to discuss specifically, is can Christians have assurance of faith? And I think a difference is that when we talk about persevering in the faith, we're asking the question, will God preserve us? Will he persevere us, both body and soul? And the second question, as it relates to our assurance of faith, hits us more in our daily walking with God this side of eternity, in the midst of our sins and in the midst of the muck of life. So can we know, not just intellectually know, but can we know in our inner man, in the midst of all that we face, that we won't be cast off by God? And if so, how? And these questions are different, significantly different than the, 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 the traveling evangelist that gives kind of the, the, the tired sales pitch of if you're 99% certain that you're saved, you're 100% certain, uh, you're 100% lost. Maybe you've heard that before. The, 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 emphasis, the emphasis is wrong in a statement like that. Right? It puts you as the main player by asking you to put your faith and your confidence, all the while your, con- your confidence isn't the basis of your salvation. Your confidence is not the basis of your salvation. As we've seen together, our salvation isn't dependent upon us, which means it isn't dependent upon uh, your very own certainty. It's dependent upon a good, unchanging God who has freely saved us, right? And who has promised in his word to keep us. And so the answer to our two questions this morning they're unequivocally yes. So we can just go ahead and close in prayer, right? right. Oh, but our, our, our perseverance in the faith and our assurance of faith, it's not, a, it's not based on our ability to hold the confidence of our salvation in our minds. Right? It isn't based on how we feel about the matter emotively, 
The object of our faith is, is not our confidence or our assurance in and of itself. The object of our faith is, as you know, Jesus Christ. Right? And he has a lot to say about the matter. So let's turn to John chapter 10 this morning. First, is we're going to look at that and then uh, discuss kind of the perseverance of the saints. And then we'll flip over to the book of Second Peter specifically in chapter 1. And we'll work through the issue of the assurance of faith. And so I'll read John 10 verses 22 to 29, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll kind of work through this text, and then later again, 2 Peter 1 together. So the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 10, starting with verse 22, he's recounting uh, Christ Jesus speaking to Jews, particularly Jewish religious leaders uh, in the midst there, but not just that. But starting with verse 22, it says, at, the time, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade or the porch of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them. He said, I told you and you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Verse 26. But you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. Being God's sheep seems to be the prelude to believing there. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lord, we thank you for this word. God, I ask you to be with us. God, grant us humility, Lord, and grant us the ability to believe and to trust and uh, be changed by your word, God, as it's the only thing that has the power, Lord, as you've ordained it to be, to change us, God. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit's help in that, and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. This part of the text here in John chapter 10, it follows, if you kind of know the narrative of the Gospel of John, it follows Jesus uh, healing the, the blind man in John chapter 9, who by the end of John chapter 9 uh, professes uh, Christ as, as Lord. He ex- eventually expresses faith in Christ Jesus, and he does this in the presence of the Pharisees, in the presence of the religious leaders in that day and age. And then when you flip over to John chapter 10, Uh, we see Christ's Good Shepherd uh, sermon. And and I call it a sermon because I think that Christ is using Old Testament imagery as he's giving uh, this uh, proclamation, this sermon, if you will, uh, about him being the Good Shepherd. I I think the backdrop of that is Psalm 23, right? Which we know the Lord is my what? It's my shepherd, right? And, and we also, and I'd encourage you to even go and perhaps read this this afternoon, we also behind that have Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel's prophecy, the Lord prophesying through Ezekiel about um, the, how selfish the shepherds of Israel were, 
uh, and how they were just kind of concerned about themselves and not about the people that God had entrusted to them. And in that prophecy, the Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd. And we ultimately see Christ being the fulfillment of that. But in that sermon, in, in that section in chapter 10, the part of chapter 10 specifically that I didn't read this morning, we see that Christ is kind of doing what we see uh, the Lord prophesying ab- about in Ezekiel chapter 34. We see Christ contrasting himself uh, as the good shepherd in the midst of uh, those shepherds who are not good. In fact, some are uh, wolves in sheep's clothing is kind of what he's getting at here. And But he, in verse 3, presents himself as the shepherd that leads his sheep. We see in verse 4 of chapter 10, if you're just kind of looking down with me, we see Christ present himself as the shepherd who goes before his sheep. We see in verses 11 and 15 and 17 and 18 that Christ is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We see in verse 16 that Christ presents himself as the seeking shepherd, which Right, our minds could go to the parable of the lost sheep there. Right? Christ seeks and saves that which is lost. He leaves the 99 to pursue the one. And then we see Christ present himself even as the door, not just as the shepherd, but as the door into the safety of the green pastures, right? into the quiet and calm of the still waters, right? Christ is the way and he's the guide to green pastures and still waters. Or genuinely a true fulfillment of Psalm chapter 23. Again, the Lord is my shepherd. And in the midst of this sermon, uh, a continuation of this shepherd and sheep imagery, um, content, it, 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 it continues, it follows, and John decides us in the midst of this to give us the setting in which our text takes place. And I'm not sure if what I just read in John 10, starting with verse 22, is, is, can, follows immediately after the preceding verses or if some time uh, takes place between the two, I'm not sure. But John here gives us a, the setting nonetheless. Our text takes place during the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, right? It takes place during Hanukkah, which was a Jewish festival that lasted for eight days. And during that eight days, no mourning, no grief uh, was allowed during that time. It was a celebration of the cleansing of the temple in, in, in Jerusalem uh, after it had been desecrated by the Syrians. So this was a celebration, this eight days, this period of time that uh, John is giving us when all these things take place, this dialogue takes place, or this sermon rather takes place, uh, it's happening in the midst of a time where uh, the Jews are celebrating God cleansing his temple. Right? Christ is at the temple during that eight-day celebration, and perhaps from the vantage point of the Pharisees, He defiles it by his claiming equality with God, and he defiles it by his claiming authority over the souls of man, especially over the keeping of the souls of man. So the setting is in the midst of uh, the Jews celebrating the purification of the temple. From their vantage point, Christ perhaps is is kind of... uh, 
desecrating it through these claims that he shares union with God. He and the Father are one, and uh, by his claiming over the, uh, his authority over the souls of man. And from this section in John 10, I want us to see, and if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, that our perseverance, and we'll work through this a little bit, our, our perseverance is grounded in the grace and in the unity of the Godhead. Our perseverance is grounded in the grace and in the unity of the Godhead. We see in, uh, in verse 28 that Christ identifies himself as the one who gives eternal life to his sheep. Again, from the perspective of the religious leaders of the day, that would have been wildly blasphemous, especially given the location and the festival that was going on. But Jesus, truly God and truly man, he identifies himself as the giver of eternal life. The preacher to the Hebraic church tells us this about Christ as well. In the first two verses of chapter 12 of Hebrews, the preacher to the Hebrews says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And look at this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is the beginning and he's the end of our salvation. There's nothing that we've done to earn it. There's nothing that we do to maintain that salvation. On your best day, like... When you end a day and you think, man, I really knocked this one out of the park, right? You're laying your head down at night and you're like, I owned this day, right? On that day, you're no more justified than on the day you laid your head down at night and say, I really blew it. You're no more justified on that day, right? Christ is the founder. Christ is the author. Christ is the finisher of our salvation. All right? This is all of grace. It's all of grace. The Apostle John quoting Jesus says that Christ is the giver of eternal life. And I don't want us to just gloss by that and not feel the significance of it this morning. Christ is the giver of of eternal life. In Christ, he can give us eternal life because he's the rightful possessor of eternal life. He's the rightful possessor of it. We are not by nature the rightful possessors of eternal life. Right? Christ alone is, and if you belong to him this morning, he's given you what is rightfully his, and he's made it rightfully yours through your union with him, made possible by the Holy Spirit of God. So your eternal life is secured in him, in Christ, because of him, because of Christ, and it's done so to the praise of the glorious grace of God. Christ goes as far as to remind us that those who belong to him, those of us who belong to him, will never perish. We see that in verse 28 as well. 
Those of us who belong to him will never perish. If, for those of you who know John 3.16, we see that promise there as well, right? Christ, he, he even gives us the imagery of being held tight in his hand. He gives us that energy. I, I, I love that imagery. If you've ever been around kids, you, you can quickly see the jealousy and the possessiveness that's made manifest through clenched fists, right? One kid is holding what's his real tight while some other intruder kid that you've invited over for playtime tries to take what's his, all right? But think about that for a moment as as it relates to Christ possessing us. Think of the imagery that he's intending to give to us. He's he's purchased us with his blood. The scripture makes clear that we belong to him, body and soul. We belong to Christ Jesus. He's our husband and we are, as his church, his bride. And he's a good and jealous Husband, we've perverted jealousy, but jealousy is good when it's employed in the right way, when it's incorruptible, and Jesus Christ is our good and jealous husband, and he won't abandon us. He won't abandon us. Think of all the things that try to snatch us away. The world, right, meaning the sinfulness that's not yet been put away, right, the devil who would snatch every one of us out of the hands of Christ if Christ had not crushed his head, in our own flesh, our own worldly passions that we can so often be led astray by. We're like Gomer, the prostitute that leaves Hosea time and time again, only to find that Hosea remains, that he's committed. Our Christ is committed to us. He's committed to us. He, He won't allow his redeeming us to himself to hang in the balance or to be jeopardized in any way. He won't allow us to leave even when we're led astray by our own passions. He won't allow us to be consumed by the defeated devil. He has us firmly in his hand. And a friend of mine recently said that the only way that we don't persevere in the faith, right? Those of us in Christ, the only way that we don't persevere in the faith is if Christ is a failure. And Christ is not a failure. He's not a failure. Right? So we see our perseverance is grounded in the grace of God, not in our own merit. We also see that our perseverance in the faith is grounded in the unity of the Godhead. In verse 29... We see Christ say that the Father has given him the sheep, right? We see him say that the Father is all-powerful, right? That the Father is greater than all, and that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand as well, right? So we have Christ is the giver of eternal life to those God's given to him. We have Christ holding us in his hands, and then we have the all-powerful God that holds us in his hand as well, all right? The hand of Christ, the hand of God. Christ, just in this short passage here, he's going at great lengths to help us understand the reality that we will, in fact, persevere. There's no greater security than to be in Christ Jesus. There's no greater security than to be 
in Christ Jesus. And we see here the unity of the Father and the Son. In fact, verse 30 here claims just a, a, a single-mindedness. Christ is claiming a single-mindedness with the Father. He says, I and the Father am one. This is what we've set out to do, and we're going to do it. Right? We've done it, we're doing it, we're going to do it. In fact, the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, is, is a theme, not the only theme, but is a theme in the Gospel of John. One theologian says this about our passage, and I love this. It says the impossibility, and we're speaking of true believers here, the impossibility of true believers being lost in the midst of all the temptations which they may encounter does not consist in their fidelity and decision, but is founded upon the power of God. Our, our perseverance is founded upon the power of God. I don't know if that's good news to you. That is really good news to me. That's really good news, because it's, if, if our perseverance in the faith is founded upon anything other than God himself, we will not persevere. We won't. We won't. And of course, we see this sort of power even in the Old Testament as it relates to God and his creation. Deuteronomy 32, 39, we see, it says, See now that I, even I am he, right? God's speaking here. And there's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there's none, get this, there's none that can deliver out of my hand. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. Or if we moved on to Isaiah, prophet Isaiah chapter 49, verse 2. Isaiah declares this, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Not literally, that would hurt. <clears throat> and in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. The shadow of his hand, he hid me. Isaiah 51, right? Just a few chapters beyond that. Verse 16. I've put my words in your mouth. Again, the Lord prophesying through the prophet Isaiah. I've put my words in your mouth and I've covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, we know ultimately is God's church, which he's redeemed, made up of Jews and Gentiles. He says to Zion, you are my people. You are my people. Right? So, so we see even in the Old Testament, none can deliver out of the hand of our God. We see that God's people are hid by the hand of our God. We see that God's people are covered in the shadow of God's hand. Right? Believers, right? We, we persevere in the faith because we're, again, we're secured by God alone. If we're secured by God alone, we, we can have confidence in that. Right? We don't have confidence in anything in and of ourselves, but we have confidence in the grace and in the mercy and in the unity of our triune God. Right? Jesus says just a few chapters earlier than our text this morning in chapter 10, he says in chapter 6, with, uh, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, right? the Father gives, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And, and get this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you come to Christ, he won't cast you out ever. Ever. Listen to how the 1689 summarizes this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I think it's beautifully put. It says, Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. That means God doesn't turn away. He doesn't change. From which source He still begets and nourishes in them faith, Repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet shall never, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, through unbelief and temptations of Satan, the sensible side of the light and love of God may be for a time clouded and obscured from them, yet he's still the same. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraved, and get this, they being engraved upon the palm of his hands, of whose hands? Of Christ's hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Isn't that comforting this morning? Flip over with me now to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, I want to look at verses 3 to 11. Just 3 to 11, we have... The Apostle Peter here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says his divine power, he's speaking of Christ here, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, right, for what we just read, because of what we just read there, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Now, before we look at the text, we need to ask ourselves what can often cloud our assurance and faith, right? Because we've worked through there the perseverance of, of the saints being grounded in the grace, mercy, and the unity of our triune God. But I want to spend a little bit of time just kind of breaking out assurance of faith from that, even though they're interconnected, right? You can't really take them apart. But what can often cloud our assurance of faith? Well, this is by no means exhaustive, but just a few things here. I think, one, a habitual lack of repentance can be one of those things. Right? You give lip service, but your, your heart, your inner man is not oriented around the things of God. And your life, because of that, may be in, in, in torment, right? a, a true living hell. Right? Your life could be that because you've been on this path of disobedience for a while, and the Holy Spirit of God is making you miserable until you change direction, right? Until you repent and rest in the finished work of Christ, right? So a habitual lack of repentance can be one. Another one can be believing that our own righteousness has any bearing on our standing before God, right? And and how do you spot if you default to something like that or not? I think one of the ways that we can spot that is by looking at our daily life, When you live in disobedience to the Lord, do you disengage from the Lord and from his community that he's provided for you because you think that you need to clean yourself up before you come to Christ and before you engage with the community again? Or when you seemingly walk in the light, do you lean into your obedience as a means to soothe yourself into thinking that you're doing okay? Sometimes we do this by comparing ourselves with other people, or we do this by gossiping about other people. Another thing that can cloud our assurance of faith is discontentment and entitlement. That can cloud our assurance of faith. Have you forgotten that all that you have is by sheer grace or has bitterness and discontentment with your lot in life taken root so that you just arrogantly think that you deserve more or something other than what you have. Right? This sort of heart posture can drown out an assurance of faith quickly. And it manifests itself in constant complaining. Another thing that can cloud our assurance of faith is immense suffering. Immense suffering. Right? Constant pain, loss, grief. All of those things can make you wonder if, if God's abandoned you. Right? Suffering can produce Im- immense intimacy with the Lord. But if we aren't intentional, and we must be intentional, again, we must be watchful, it can be a stumbling block to our assurance of faith. One other reason, again, this isn't exhaustive, but one other reason we often lack assurance, and one of the reasons I think many of us can be ridden with anxiety, there certainly is a biological component of that, but that's not within the scope of this morning's message, but one of the reasons why many of us can be ridden with anxiety is because we do tend to disengage or neglect those means of assurance that God's provided for us. Lord's Day worship, right? Word, prayer, sacrament, Christian community, 
We can often neglect that, and what that can do is escalate our anxiety because we're not engaging with those things that God has provided for us by which we may increase our assurance of faith. Now, from our text here in Second Peter, what is the path toward having assurance of faith look like? Right? How can we combat the enemies of our insurance? And I'll just give you three <clears throat> quick things here, and we can send these out if you don't get it jotted down. But the first is this, and it's grounded in verses 3 to 4. The first thing is recognizing that God's given us everything we need for our assurance of faith. God has given us everything we need for our assurance of faith. Right? His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. We see here in verses 3 and 4 the sufficiency of our Lord as we trust in his word. Matthew Henry says, "...the fountain of all spiritual blessings..." is Christ. The fountain of all spiritual blessings is Christ. And in the sufficiency of Christ, his person, his work, him is the final word of God, has given us all things that pertain to life, both our physical and our spiritual life, in godliness. Godliness there, the word for that being piety. Right? Our virtue of religious devotion to our triune God. He's given us all things sufficient to that. So we see that Christ, as he's revealed in Scripture, right? and we know that all of Scripture testifies about Christ Jesus, sufficient. And not sufficient just for our salvation, but he, Christ, being truly man and truly God, is sufficient in our daily walking with God. Right? He's sufficient in the midst of doubts. He's sufficient in the midst of suffering. He's sufficient in the midst of temptation. He's sufficient in the midst of, of conflict and controversy and fear and worry. He's sufficient as you work at a job that you hate. He's sufficient as you love your spouse when you don't feel loved back. He's sufficient as you parent kids that you feel like aren't getting it. He's sufficient as you age. He's sufficient in failing health. He's sufficient no matter where you are in life and in godliness. Christ is sufficient. Because his word teaches us that he's granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness because he, according to verse 1 in 2 Peter chapter 1 here, is Jesus our God and our Savior. And it's in casting ourselves continually before our sufficient Savior that we can truly find assurance of faith. Because it's, it's him who, who's provided these, these characteristics, that, 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 that these qualities that can increase our assurance of faith, which is the second thing I want you to see. Right? We recognize that God has provided for us first everything we need for our assurance of faith. Secondly, we're to labor in those qualities that the Lord's provided to us. We need to labor in those qualities that the Lord has provided. There's a sort of resting labor, right? Resting in the finished work of Jesus as we labor in the way in which he's called us to labor. And in doing so, that increases our assurance of faith. 
Right, but verses 5 to 7, we see that. This re- very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now, for time's sake, I can't break down every one of those the way that I'd, I'd like to, unless y'all are up for staying here until this afternoon, but... Uh, But Peter here is teaching us that we're to supplement our faith, which means to make a lavish provision. We're to labor from our justification in those things which promote our love and devotion to Christ and to other people. And the the list Peter gives here is not insignificant. We see virtue, which is a a, a Christ-like goodness, a, a moral uprightness and and, and to have this takes courage in our day and age, which many Christians lack. Seems to me to be one of the chief reasons why so many Christians lack assurance of faith and thus conviction and boldness and humble confidence. Right? The lack of courage is kind of a, it has a domino effect, biblical courage that is. If you lack courage, you can't have uprightness, which is what the word virtue means. You can't be... Uh, you can't have Christ-like goodness through the trials and the storms of life. And we also see that virtue should be wed to knowledge. Gnosis is the word here. You may hear, hear uh, it's what we get Gnosticism from. And in the first century, the Gnostics believed that uh, people obtain special knowledge through experience. And if, uh, Apostle Peter here is using this word knowledge to say that this, this isn't an intellectual ascent. Right, an intellectual ascent is easy to do. The sort of knowledge behind the word Peter here is using here is applied knowledge, which is the only kind of knowledge that matters, right? It's applied knowledge. It's connecting what you know to be true, right? Your right standing with God, your relationship with Christ to your actual life. Right? It's an experiential knowledge. It isn't enough to just know what's true. We must know so as to apply it to every area of our lives. And then we also see self-control. Right? This is to, to master yourself. It's to master yourself, to not be led by your passions, to take every thought captive to the Word of God. We see steadfastness which is to persevere. This is a defining characteristic of our brothers and sisters who suffer much for the sake of Christ and for those who've been killed for their faith even. This, this is the, the, the God-given wherewithal that brothers and sisters like that have cultivated through the ordinary means of grace that's helped them to remain, to stand firm in their commitment to Christ. We see godliness in, our, in this list. Again, that's the word for piety. It's an inner response to the Lord. That's this, the orientation of your heart. This is something that should be nurtured in our daily lives. We see brotherly affection, which is love for your fellow Christians, which is absolutely essential. In our day and age, we're skeptical of those in God's church, but we're called by God to be fond of one another. Right? And, that, and that has to be practiced in our church body, we're called to assume the best of each other. We're called to labor for the welfare of one another. And then he ends the list with love, which is exclusively a biblical word. It's love that's demonstrated perfectly by Christ and should be ever increasing with the Holy Spirit's help in the life of a believer in every sphere of life. 
This is a very practical, earthy list, isn't it? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And this isn't something that we check off of a list. This, again, is something to be nurtured in light of the finished work of Christ and with the Holy Spirit of God living in you. And then third and last, if we labor in these qualities, according to Peter, if we labor in these qualities that by God's grace we can have assurance of faith. If we labor by God's grace in these qualities God's provided for us, we can have assurance of faith. As verses 8 to 11 there, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, if these qualities are in your possession, which if you're in Christ, they are in your possession. You're not inventing them out of thin air. What Christ rightfully owns is ours because we share union with him. If, they are in, if they're being cultivated in our lives, if we're nurturing them, the gospel of Christ keep us, verse 8, from being ineffective. They keep us from being, verse 8, unfruitful. They help us, verse 9, to remember that our sins are forgiven. Right? They help us to, according to verse 10, confirm our calling and election. In verse 10 as well, they help us to keep, they keep us from falling. Right? This is the way that the Lord increases our assurance of faith as we seek to live before the face of God. So believer, this morning, know that if you're in faith, if you're in Christ, you will persevere because Christ and the Father, by the Spirit of, 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 of God, who is our seal, who's our guarantor of our eternal life, right? the, the grace, the mercy, the unity of our triune God, will persevere us. So if you're in Christ, that is you. That is you. And we can have assurance of faith. Or as the Puritans would say, a comfortable walking with God, not because circumstances may be all that great, not because uh, things are working out the way that we exactly would want things to work out, but you can have a comfortable walking with God as it relates to your conscience because he's Giving, giving you the things to cultivate in your daily walking from Him as you labor from your justification, as you labor from being accepted fully by God because of Christ. So a few takeaways this morning, and then we'll move into the time of, our, of the Lord's Supper. First is Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Therefore, Christians will persevere in the faith. And this is in your worship guide. Secondly, a biblical view of God's sovereignty and optimism about his plan and purpose in redemptive history helps fuel our assurance of salvation. Third, God's word does not leave the question of our perseverance ambiguous. He's clear. Those he saves, he sustains and brings home. And then fourth, our personal assurance of faith can ebb and flow with our obedience or disobedience to the Lord. Yet Christ has made it possible for us to have true assurance. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we've had in your word together, God. And now as we go into a time of taking the Lord's Supper, I pray, God, that you would strengthen our faith and our assurance, not in and of ourselves, but in you and you alone. And I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.